This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna Hobart. A war of words is deepening between the United States and China, with Beijing claiming multiple American high-altitude balloons have previously entered Chinese airspace. The claim comes a week after American forces shot down a Chinese surveillance balloon over the US East Coast, which shattered tentative steps by both sides to improve relations. East Asia correspondent Bill Bertels has more. After a week on the back foot defending what officials called civilian research balloons accidentally flying into foreign airspace, China's government now claims it's the victim. A foreign ministry spokesman, Wang Wenbin, says since the beginning of last year, US high-altitude balloons or airships have entered Chinese airspace more than 10 times. He didn't, though, give any details of the alleged incursions, but claimed China acted responsibly by not shooting them down. The United States clearly knows how many spy and surveillance airships and balloons it's sent across the world. Who is the empire of spying and eavesdropping? It's plain to see. China's claim comes after a week that saw the US military shoot down four separate aerial objects, of which only one has been attributed to China. The detection of the Chinese balloon scuttled a high-level diplomatic meeting and relations between the two great powers have only worsened since. In a TV interview, a White House security spokesman, John Kirby, rejected Beijing's allegation of American airships over China. Not true. Not doing it. Just absolutely not true. Adding to the mix, a Chinese state media report of a vague safety warning issued to fishing crews due to an unidentified aerial object spotted in Chinese airspace. The warning mentioned preparations to shoot it down, fueling all sorts of claims on China's highly nationalistic social media. Dr Ian Chong, a Singapore-based analyst with Carnegie China, says Beijing's claims of multiple US balloons may refer to disputed parts of the ocean claimed by China. If those incursions were in disputed territory that could otherwise be construed as uh, international airspace or international waters, then perhaps those claims are not as strong. Uh, But we don't know because the PRC side has not been more forthcoming with details. Ian Chong says the People's Republic of China government wants to stress it's also on the receiving end of spying and surveillance. But he says the lack of transparency and a track record of dubious claims is making it a harder sell. One of the reasons for scepticism is because over the past few years, the PRC have some PRC officials have sometimes come out with more outlandish claims about COVID origin, um, about lots of countries um, agreeing with the one China principle when that may not actually be the case. So that I think naturally tends to encourage people to discount somewhat um, what PRC officials say. But it could well be true. Um, I'm awaiting more evidence to be to know for sure. This is Bill Bertels in Taipei reporting for AM. And the White House has just held a briefing about the high-altitude balloons. North America correspondent Barbara Miller is in Washington. Well, they say that these three unidentified objects shot down over the past three days were flying at an altitude that meant that they did pose a potential risk to civilian aircraft. 
contrasting that with that suspected spy balloon which was allowed to traverse the US and was shot down over the Atlantic Ocean. So they said that's why they decided to down these, one off the coast of Alaska, one over the Yukon in Canada and one over at Lake Huron in Michigan. But they don't actually know what they have shot down. Um, John Kirby, a White House spokesman, said that the debris is in, for all three objects, is in relatively remote, difficult to access area areas. So they haven't managed to get to it yet. Um, just to give you a bit of a flavour of how um, absurd at, at points this briefing was, uh, it began with the White House spokeswoman clarifying that they do not, uh, they have no indication that there was any alien or extraterrestrial activity involved. Uh, that's because a uh, a senior commander said he wasn't ruling anything out uh, during a background briefing on that. So what John Kirby is saying is that one of the reasons why suddenly the White House has, or the administration has decided to have to shoot these down is that they've essentially tuned or tweaked their radar following the Chinese balloon incident. Let's just hear the spokesman explain that process now and its consequences. They have modified the filters and the gains, as we call it, uh, of, the, of the, the radar capabilities to look more discreetly at high altitude, small radar cross section, and low speed objects. And so if you do that, um, anybody that's operated a radar will know you can, set, you can set the parameters. And if you set the parameters in such a way that to, to look for a certain something, it's more likely that you're gonna find us. And Bob, has there been any response from the White House to Beijing's claims that the US has had its own balloons flying over China? In that briefing, John Kirby was asked about that. He again denied that there were any U.S. balloons in Chinese airspace. He was asked whether there were any U.S. surveillance aircraft in Chinese airspace or over, for example, Taiwan, and he said that wasn't the case. So a, a firm denial of those allegations from China. North America correspondent Barbara Miller in Washington. The United Nations says rescue operations are coming to a close as the focus shifts to an urgent humanitarian response for the millions left homeless by last week's earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. The number confirmed dead has risen to more than 35,000, but the UN's warning the final death toll is likely to be at least double that. The ABC's Sean Rubenstein-Dunlop is in Gaziantep province near the Syrian border. Sean, you're in one of the worst hit areas. Survivors of the earthquake are now grappling with freezing cold. You're also seeing increasing frustration with the government response and you've just experienced an aftershock. Yeah, look, we felt a huge aftershock. We've felt a number here uh, since I got here about a week ago and that was certainly for me the biggest one I've felt so far. I'm in a hotel which shook and we've been assured that this one has been declared uh, earthquake proof, but my entire room was shaking. So the risks continue here. And even yesterday we watched rescuers uh, trying to find someone alive in a collapsed building during an aftershock as well, and, and they went running from that building. So the risks are real here, that's for sure. 
But as for uh, Gazi and Tep province and, and the uh, frustration that people are here feeling here with the government, well, we've been visiting villages and towns here, which is near the epicentre of, of where the quake was. And in some of them, official rescuers actually never showed up. The Turkish Disaster Agency didn't respond to their calls for help. In, in one village, we spoke with a man whose neighbour was buried alive under the rubble. He kept her alive by talking to her, but official rescuers never showed. And it wasn't just the rescuers here. It took days for aid to show up too. People spent four days outside in the freezing cold snow and rain after escaping from their homes and all they had was the clothes they had on them. It was 4.30am, remember, so many were in their pyjamas. Some said they were in shorts and bare feet and they stayed awake for days freezing and terrified before aid and temporary shelter in the form of tents finally arrived. So that sparked a lot of anger here uh, with the government. And I should say as well, uh, we've we've witnessed a lot of uh, anger between anti-government and pro-government supporters here uh, over their views on the quake response. Now, that region also has a large number of Syrian refugees. How are they coping? Well, that's right. We're very close to the Syrian border here. So a lot of people who fled the Syrian civil war over the past decade have made this their new home. We visited tent cities today, which have finally started being set up for those many people left homeless here because of the quakes. And the one we visited uh, housed mostly Syrian refugees, families there uh, who are now displaced again, dealing with the news that loved ones have died back in Syria, where aid, particularly in rebel-held areas, is in really short supply. And there's a, a, a figure I want to give you that I think really, really sheets this home. There are more than a million said to be homeless in Turkey now, but the UN estimates that more than 5 million now in Syria have nowhere to live. They're in a far worse situation than even here in Turkey. Sean Rubenstein Dunlop and Sean and his crew are taking every precaution to stay safe. The Disability Royal Commission's again examining disability service providers in incidents of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation, with a public hearing underway in Brisbane. National Disability Affairs report Elizabeth Wright has more in a warning. This story contains graphic details. That's really beautiful here, sweetie. Sharon Braverman and her husband are visiting a sensory garden dedicated to their son's memory. It's nearly five years since he died. I know that it was completely preventable and he's meant to be here. 11 year old Alex Reichman was autistic and had an intellectual disability. He was non-verbal and required one-to-one care at all times. His mother was his primary carer. Alex was probably stronger and definitely faster than most adults. In April 2018, Alex went to stay at a house in Oatley in Sydney South, run by Civic Disability Services to provide respite care for children. Sharon Braverman booked the five-night stay and wrote on the form that Alex was a profound absconding risk and could climb any fence and run fast. My expectation was a safe care setting run and maintained by professional skilled staff. 
An inquest heard that Alex twice tried to escape from the house and Civic had a handyman secure the windows, but one was missed. On the fourth night of his stay, Alex climbed out the ensuite window, jumped a low fence and ran away. While emergency services searched, Alex reached Oatley Railway Station where he walked off a platform and was hit by a train. The shock of his death remains indescribable for his father, Dale. I couldn't imagine anything worse for, for a family. It was very challenging to get through each day. Last October, the New South Wales Deputy State Coroner found that Alex's death was entirely preventable if adequate safety measures had been in place. She said the trust the family had placed in Civic to care for their precious child was betrayed. Sharon Braverman lives with post-traumatic stress disorder. My loss is Alex's loss and he's missing out on this minute and this day. In a statement, Civic expressed their sadness in relation to Alex's death. They said since 2018 they'd committed to internal and external reviews to ensure they learned from the tragic accident. Civic has adopted the coroner's recommendations, including that they no longer provide respite care to children under 16. Sharon Braverman has taken her concerns around Alex's death to the Disability Royal Commission. The pain is just underneath the, the rage and the, the feeling of injustice. Sharon Braverman ending that report by Elizabeth Wright and Selena Edmonds. The Chief Executive of Civic Disability Services will appear at the Disability Royal Commission on Thursday and you can read the organisation's full statement on our website. If you or a family member have needed to speak with a psychologist during these last few difficult years, there's a good chance you've struggled to get an appointment. A new report out today from the McKell Institutes found that by the end of last year, more than a third of psychologists were so busy they couldn't take on any new clients. Samantha Donovan reports. For the practice of Sydney psychologist Sarah O'Doherty, it's been impossible to meet the demand for services over the last few years. Particularly last year and the year before, we had to be closing our wait lists and needing to refer people onto other practices because we just didn't have the capacity to see everybody who wanted to come in and see one of my team. She says people have been struggling with a range of issues, including depression, anxiety, stress, ADHD and relationship problems. The McKell Institute has been researching the challenges facing Australia's mental health workforce. Its CEO, Michael Buckland says there's a clear and viable way of making psychological treatment more accessible in the short term. In Australia, we have about 8,000 provisional psychologists. These people have undergone their full formal training and they're doing on-the-job training. Once you add provisional psychologists to the Medicare system, they'll be able to then take some of that demand away from other psychologists. And the Australian Association of Psychologists strongly supports that idea. Sarah O'Doherty is one of its directors. Provisional psychologists are already currently working in the community. They might be doing things like intake assessments or psychoeducation, talking to people about what their diagnosis means to them and also giving quite basic treatment. Is it good enough, though, for Australians to have to get help from people who aren't yet fully registered psychologists? As long as the provisional psychologist is getting their adequate supervision 
and they're able to practice within their competencies, then this is absolutely what we need to be doing. She says if the services of provisional psychologists were eligible for a Medicare rebate, their clients would save money. A lot of provisional psychologists are being charged out by the practices that they work for using a private fee. And that can be anywhere between $70 a session to being charged out at about $150 per session with no Medicare rebate attached to that. So the patient just pays that private fee. The Australian Association of Psychologists is urging the federal government to make the services of provisional psychologists eligible for the Medicare rebate in the May federal budget. Samantha Donovan. As Iran's protests stretch into their fifth month, tens of thousands of people have been arrested and more than 500 killed. Despite the brutal crackdown by Iran's government, protesters are demanding a referendum and want regime change. A coalition of activists in exile, including Reza Pavli, the son of former Shah of Iran, is working to help the demonstrators in their fight for freedom. Nassim Kadem reports. All around the world, Iranians are calling for a revolution. These chants are coming from protesters in Melbourne, but their message is in support of those risking their lives in the streets of Tehran. These, this government is oppressing everyone from minority groups for their sexuality, for their religion. The former Shah of Iran was overthrown in 1979 by an Islamic revolution. The Shah oversaw a period of rapid economic advancement, but was criticised for using secret police to stifle dissent. His son, Reza Pahlavi, has lived in exile in the United States for most of his life. He's among opposition voices in the diaspora, calling for regime change and wants to help Iran transition to a secular democracy. I'm doing this in collaboration with those who are active outside of Iran, in direct contact and communication with those within Iran who be in majority the people who would feel uh, the, the vacuum post-regime. He's calling on world leaders to help the Iranian people with internet access and strike funds for workers. Maximum support for the people. That's what they're asking. That's what the people expect. Netherlands Polster, the group for analysing and measuring attitudes in Iran, recently did an online survey of 200,000 Iranians inside Iran and in the diaspora. It found that more than 80% reject the Islamic Republic and want a democratic government. But as Iran's latest wave of protests kick into their fifth month, human rights groups report almost 20,000 have been arrested and more than 500 people have been killed. These groups have not verified government claims that most protesters have been freed. Amnesty International campaigner Nikita White says at least 14 people have been sentenced to death following forced confessions and sham trials. Ever since protests began, the Iranian authorities have responded with violence. They have killed protesters on the streets. They have arrested thousands of protesters. They have tortured people. 
Iranian journalist and activist Homo Sarshor was a columnist for Iranian newspapers during the Shah's reign. She moved to Los Angeles in 1978 and is among those who have been speaking out against Iran's human rights abuses. They're saying clearly and loudly that we, our, our life is not important. The freedom for Iran is important. Having a democracy in Iran is important. Behnam Ben Talablu is a senior fellow at Think Tank FDD, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. So long as the Islamic Republic is going to be in power, and so long as the basic demands of the Iranian people are not being met, there will be more. Nassim Kadem reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Anthony Albanese says he wants to end the climate wars. But tomorrow, the battle will only intensify when legislation to force big polluters to cut their emissions comes before the parliament. Today, a long-time climate reporter on how the government's plan would work and why opposition keeps building. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.